All right, so now we'll shift to today's scripture reading. Uh, today's reading is from Ruth 4, 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. We have finally arrived at the end of the book of Ruth. Some of you guys haven't been to church in a month. I'm not, I'm not taking attendance. We're, we're at the end now. Uh, let me just give you a quick, let me set the scene for us, for those of you guys that have been in and out of the series. Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, returned to Bethlehem looking for two things, food and home. Ruth goes out, as they're back in Bethlehem, Ruth goes out looking for food, ends up arriving at the field owned by a man named Boaz. Boaz is a good guy. He's a worthy man. Another important fact about Boaz is he's part of Naomi's family. And as harvest season comes to close, there is this great interaction between Boaz and Ruth. Boaz is a worthy man. He's a owner of this field, and he's super nice to Ruth. And Ruth finds out he's a single man, and there's this interaction. Yet, as the harvest season comes to close, there's no action. So Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, tells Ruth, go, make yourself available, and make sure you tell him your intentions. Ruth goes out when Naomi's alone in the threshing floor, tells him, hey, you're the redeemer. You can redeem us. Surprise, surprise. Boaz tells Ruth. No one else knew. Boaz tells Ruth. Feelings are mutual. Girl, I, I want to. But the problem is there's another man that is actually closer to the family. He has to renounce his rights in order for me to be able to take you in. And so that night, Boaz tells Ruth, I'm going to settle this as soon as possible and gives his word to Ruth and Naomi. And chapter 3 comes to close with Naomi saying, Boaz is going to take care of this. So we're in chapter 4. This is where we pick up the story. If you have your Bibles, Ruth chapter 4. We'll start from verse 1 and we'll fly through it. The opening scene of the final chapter, chapter 4, takes place at a Bethlehem city's gate. This picture of gate. A place where all legal matters were handled by a group of elders. They didn't, the, their legal system was, was this group of elders. If anyone in the members of the community had issues or problems with each other, they'll bring it to the city gate, and these elders in front of witnesses will make decisions on what is right, what is wrong, what needs to be done. Redeeming a family 
Right, this is what Boaz is hoping to do to redeem family of Elimelech, whose his clan is first and foremost a legal matter. This is a very, this is a legal matter, and they have to take care of it at the city gate. So Boaz arrives at, at the gate, hoping to settle the matter once and for all. Quick review about this idea of kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. There's another man who we're going to find out. He's also a kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer really is very unique to the nation Israel. Nation Israel had redemption in her DNA. In the Old Testament, the idea of redeemer goes way back in the time of Moses when Israel was under the slavery of Egypt. And when God showed up, Israelites were crying out. They were being oppressed by Egyptians. God calls Israelites out, calls Moses and says, take my people out. God sends plagues. God splits the Red Sea. God provides manna in the wilderness. And this idea of God being Redeemer is an intricate part of Israelite story. In fact, in Old Testament, God is referred by his people as the Redeemer. God is the Redeemer. And from then on, Israel again continues to have this story of redemption and redeeming becomes an important part of their law. God gives Israelites law, and part of the law is this idea of being redeemers. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy books in the Old Testament clearly lays out the role and the purpose of kinsman redeemer. And this was a huge part of what it meant to be part of God's people. So verse 1, the author, tell, so, so Boaz is a redeemer. There's another man who has rights before Boaz because he's closer to the family of Naomi. And the author tells us the other kinsmen happen to go by the gate. So Boaz arrives at the gate, and the other man, the man that Boaz wants to talk to, he happens to pass by the gate. Again, we continue to see this theme of Yahweh being involved in great details of the story. Right? In small parts. The author never, you know, rarely says God shows up and God orchestrates these events, but we see very clearly that God is intricately involved in the details of the story. The very man who Boaz needed to see happens to walk by. So Boaz says, hey, sit down. Let me sit down. There are elders, there are witnesses there. And he breaks the ice by just asking the man, asking this other kinsman redeemer what he intends to do with Naomi. Now that she's returned, and apparently they had some land that belonged to the family, what are you going to do about that land? Verse 4, Boaz asks the man either to purchase the land. If you're going to redeem it, redeem it. If you're not going to redeem it, I want to redeem it. Makes his intentions clear. In verse 4b, so the man, the other man, he's, he's not named here, perhaps embarrassed or pressured or both, immediately says, I'll do it. I'm going to purchase the land. It's going to be mine. He thinks, Naomi's too, too old to have a kid. Naomi's not going to, want to have a kid, not going to be able to have a kid. So if he purchased the land, the land is going to stay with his own children. It's not going to go back to Naomi's family. So initially, it's a no-brainer, great investment, nothing to lose. I purchased the land, land will stay with our family. Then Boaz surely tells the man, Verse 5, the day you get the land, the, way you, the, the day you redeem the land, you also must acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. So it's not just Naomi. There's a Moabite widow who has returned with her. 
the man pauses, this unnamed man pauses, not knowing what to say. Everyone is watching, the elders are present, the air is thin. Anything he commits to do in front of these elders and the witnesses, he cannot reverse it. He cannot retract. He has to fulfill it. So once again, begins to calculate, do the math in his head. Purchase the land, marry this Moabite woman. Going to get flagged for marrying a Moabite woman. We might have a, she's young, so we might have a kid. She's going to probably want a kid. When the kid grows up, we're going to have to return the land to that family. In the end, it's a huge risk and not very great reward. Not so great return, return on investment. So retracts. Immediately he says, wait, wait, wait. I'll, if I have to redeem the woman, I'm not going to take the land. You can do it. You see, in, in the text, he says, I cannot do it. But truth is, it's not he cannot do it. It's that he, though he has the ability to redeem, he has the means to redeem. What he's really saying is he doesn't want to because in the end, the numbers don't work. He doesn't want to, in the end, he doesn't want to take the loss. It's interesting because he is part of God's people. He is part of the law. And he knew God's heart for those in need. He knew why the law, this law was set up. He knew what he had to do. Yet all we see in this text is that his only concern is for his own wealth and his own future, his own legacy. And the irony of the whole thing is, we'll see at the end, by seeking to protect his future legacy, what happens? This man ends up leaving himself nameless. Him being unnamed in Ruth 4 is intentional. He doesn't deserve to be named. Missing out on having a share in the biggest legacy of all, a place in God's plan of salvation. We'll get to that towards the end. So he's like, he's, he's so worried about losing his name that actually he, he, he loses out in this biggest legacy of all. And we'll see that at the end. And really, one thing that we need to notice in this text is there is no fear of God. He is a... Jewish man, he is a Hebrew, he knows the law, he knows the Torah, but there is no fear of God. Not even for a moment he thinks, what should I do to honor God? What would God want from me as a kinsman redeemer of this family? It's simply about the bottom line. And because the bottom line does not look good for him, he refuses Friends, following God, trusting Him, living a life of genuine faith is not always easy. It's like this man. He has choices and we have choices. Living a life of genuine faith will challenge us to make hard and difficult decisions. If faith is easy, if Christian life is easy for you, you have to question yourself whether you are really living that life. You are really following Christ. More times than not, there will be times where we would need to sacrifice. We would need to lose out. We would need to not be able to do the very things we want. 
More times than not, there will be times where we will be challenged to do things that may not benefit us, but benefit others. At times, in the eyes of our non-Christian friends and family members, what we do as Christians won't make much sense. Yet as you walk with Jesus, as these challenges come, as these opportunities to lay down your desires and your purpose and your reasons, your calculation, your math, God will continue, right? There will be opportunities. Just like this man in the story, we all have choices. God will not force our hand. God will not make us do the right thing. Yet when we continue to make decisions around what's best for us, like this man in the story, the price we pay, sure, you may be safe, you may not lose out, you may make a little more money, little better situation. But in the long run, what happens is you totally miss out on all the things that God wants you and I to experience. For this man, he did his math. Math did not work. And he's like, no, I'm not going to redeem it. He's missing out. We'll see in the end, he's missing out big time. He could have been Boaz. This whole story could have changed. This man could have showed up and said, look at this. Caleb, I'll give him a Jewish name. Caleb, or is that, is that a Jewish name? I don't even know the Jewish name. Right? Look at this man. But no, he's totally unnamed, unimportant. It's so confusing because I can't even name him. It's like unnamed man. The price we pay when we continue to just live for our own gain or benefit or idea of what is good is so much bigger than what we realize. Matthew 16, 23, great example, right? Jesus um, looks at his disciples and they're all sort of feeling themselves because they're like feeling great. They're part of the crew, the, the, the chosen ones. They're hanging out with Jesus. Everybody's coming to them. And they all think they're pretty great, right? Peter's always raising his hand. John's like, oh, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. The endless argument about who is number two. Who is actually the greatest after Jesus? And as everybody's jockeying for their position, some like mom comes, and mom's like, Oh, my two sons, can they can they sit next to you? Right? It's like it gets really crazy, these stories of um, grown men wanting this position. Jesus intently looks at them in Matthew 16, in verse 25, he says, If any of you guys wanna come after me, if you really wanna follow me. What does Jesus say? Matthew 16. He says what? He must continue to produce. He must continue. He must have great charisma. He must be great talent, greatly talented. He must know what he's doing. He must be diligent. No, the number one qualification we find in Matthew 16 is this, that we must deny ourselves deny our own benefits, especially when we, we, are sense, we sense that God is doing something new in our lives. And Jesus says, take up our cross. Take up our cross, not just today, but tomorrow, the next day. This is really how Jesus defines what it means to follow him. And he says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my name's sake will find it. 
Friends, what will, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? That's what Jesus says. Yet forfeits, forfeits his soul. And of course, the answer is nothing. I mean, who, if we sat down and said, hey, for your soul, I'll give you $500. You'd be like, no, for your soul, I'll give you a brand new house. No, like nobody will make that. Do- Jesus is saying nothing is more important than your soul. And in order for your soul to be healthy and well, it's about following me by carrying the cross. So friends, as we approach Ruth chapter 4 this morning or this afternoon, are there areas in your life, whether that's your career, your singlehood, your marriage, your business, your finances, you fill in the blank. Areas that God may be nudging you. God may be asking you to do things differently. The way you run your business, the way you treat your spouse, the way you date, the way you think about your future, the way you think about your finances, whatever the area may be. I want us to consider just like this man because we can do all the calculations just like this man and we can say, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And, and, and when, when God is nudging us, we have all these excuses, don't we? We have all these reasons why we can't do it a certain way. We have all these reasons why we need to go this way or we need to continue to do this. But God's going to simply say, hey, Soul versus what you can gain. And the other side of the gate, there's this man, unnamed man, kind of living his life according to own calculation. There is Boaz, who says, I'll honor God no matter what. I'll pay the cost. If you're not going to pay, I'll pay. If you're not going to redeem, let me redeem. In fact, He places all of his wealth because he has no other children. The child that he will have with the next woman he marries will have everything he has. He places all of his wealth, all of his reputation, taking on a Moabite woman as his wife. All of his future on the line, placing his complete trust in Yahweh. You see, in the eyes of the world, this is a big mistake. Boaz was not only worthy, but he was kind. He had land. He was, he could have had married anyone in the town. Any single lady in the town would have, would have loved to marry Boaz. But Boaz senses, hey, sees Ruth, sees what's happening, sees that God may be moving him to this direction. And, 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 and this is part of Boaz's obedience. He chooses to enter into this relationship with Ruth, not simply out of love. We, we see the story like, oh, it's so much about love. If we look at this story with the lens of Western lens, you know, our modern day lens, yeah, it's a beautiful love story. But if you think about Eastern culture, where dating was not part of the formula to get married, it was like people setting you up. It's, as a farmer, you're, lo- you're not looking for, you're looking for someone to have your children. Like the, the criteria is different. The way you approach marriage is different. So Boaz... 
we think it's, it's not simply he's moving, he's moving based on his feelings or affection towards Ruth. No, I think the bigger story that he senses is that, hey, God may be calling him. And this is why in chapter 3, or in, here in this chapter 4, when he approaches this man, hey, if you redeem her, good, redeem her. Boaz challenged the man. If you redeem her, that's great. Because I think Boaz, really, it's not about just his affection or his love. It's about obeying God. It's about, it's about following His law and His structure to take care of the widows and the orphans. It's, it's, it's man who knows the heart of God. So the man says, no, I'm not going to do it. Boaz says, great, I'll do it. If you're not going to do it, I'll do it. Verse 7, so both men agree in the presence of the witnesses. According to their tradition, they seal the deal by passing their sandal, weird, but it works. Verse 9, Boaz lifts up the man's sandal and makes the transaction public, proclaiming that I will not only redeem the land that belongs to Elimelech, but, verse 10, also Ruth, the Moabite, as my wife. And verse 11, then all the people who are at the gate and the elders, they say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And then everyone claps. Everyone clap. Clap, maybe. Clap. Right? Beautiful story. They walk off to the sunset, Middle Eastern sunset, and the story is over. No, the story is not over. There's more. That's just... 70%. Here's, here's the next 30%. Verse 13. So Boaz takes Ruth. You guys are like, okay, we get, we get to go home? No, no, no. We got a little more here. We got a little more work. Verse 13. Boaz takes Ruth as his wife together. You know, where the babies come from. They, they lay together and there's a baby. In fact, no. In fact, the author says in verse 13, the Lord gave her conception. The Lord gave her conception. This is the only second time in all of the book of Ruth where Yahweh's explicit action is recorded by the author. First time was Ruth chapter 1 verse 6 when the Lord had provided them food. And now here the Lord had provided them a child. We said two things Naomi and Ruth needed was not only food but also a child and both are provided by the Lord. Author wants us to clearly know that God is God of provision. That God is the one who meets us. God is the one who gives us what we need. From the opening pages of the story, Naomi had two very clear needs. And they're both provided by the Lord. But this wonderful, dramatic, Middle Eastern love story concludes in a rather peculiar fashion. At the end, if you look at, like, open up Ruth chapter 4, at the end, we are given, it's like sort of credits, or we're given a long list of Hebrew names. Some we may know, most we don't. Don't try to read the Hebrew, I just made that up. They're not real Hebrew. Some seminarians like, oh, Pastor Tommy, you didn't, you are correct. Okay, don't email me. It's just, just picture, images. Um, and verse 18, it says, Now the generation of Perez, and verse 22, Obed, father, Jesse. We know Jesse, some of us. Oh, Jesse, ding, ding, ding. Jesse fathered 
David, David from Bethlehem. You guys shocked? Some of you guys are like, I knew this, okay? The, the author has saved the most shocking piece of information till the end. It's like watching a movie and then it's being blown away by the last, sort of last line the character says. It's like, it's like mind blown. Like, you want to watch the movie again? Like, what? What? You see, what seemed like a simple story of love, trial, grit, and redemption for these two widows turns out to be part of a far greater story of trial, grit, love, and the ultimate redemption of humanity. The story opened with this statement, right? We've said this many times. In the days when the judges ruled. That was the opening statement. That's the setting. Far, far, long, long time ago, the days when judges were ruled. Judges ruled. And, and, and why did the judges rule? Because Israel did not have a true king. Because Israel did not have a true leader, a shepherd. The baby that's on Naomi's lap at the end of the story. The child that was born between Ruth and Boaz, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, the great king of nation Israel. And he was probably the greatest king. But that was only until another baby was born in the same town of Bethlehem. David was pretty great. David was pretty awesome. Until another baby was born in the city of Bethlehem. And the gospel writer, Matthew, he says this in his introduction of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 21. You shall call this baby Jesus. And the angel said to Joseph, for he will, what? Redeem. He will redeem his people from their sins. Friends, the acceptance of Ruth, who is not a Jew but a Moabite widow, into Israel's history in the time of Judges was a sign of greater reality to come. And from what did Jesus come to redeem you and I, us from? He came to redeem you and I from ourselves. You see, just like the nameless man in the story that we have read about, we have talked about, when given a choice, this is a human, this nameless man is just picture of humanity. When given a choice, we will continue to choose what we desire, our math, or what works for us over God's purpose, God's vision for life. We will continue to choose life for our own glory, for our own benefit, for our own legacy, while ignoring God and His heart for the world. The nameless man is picture is a picture of humanity. It's picture of you and I. It's picture of me. When, I, when Lois and I get into an argument, it's, I'm like, no, I want it my way. When my, my little, little two girls act out, I'm like, be quiet. They try to control them. When I'm driving and someone cuts me off and I'm going to get out of the car and, and, and do something to them, it's a picture of who I am. It's a picture of who you are. Because we think, oh, calculation does not work out. 
And this is why Jesus came, this baby in a manger came to rescue us from ourselves. He didn't come to rescue us from bad people or bad things. Actually, it's us that needs the rescue. And 1 Peter 18, 19 says, You who are in Christ, you are ransomed, you are redeemed. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus took on sin and death so that whoever believes in him can begin to not die and live. Not simply live for our own glory, but again, for his, his heart, his vision, his purpose. And that's what scripture defines as life abundant. Life abundant is not our desire, our wants, our house. It's God's, God's vision, God's idea. So that's Ruth. One final note as we wrap up the story of Ruth. If we, if we learn anything from the story, I think one thing that is abundantly clear as we, as we think about chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, now chapter 4, if we learn anything is that reality of how much we truly don't understand life or how limited we are able to see and process life compared to God. You think about Naomi and Ruth and the story, especially if you zoom into Naomi, chapter 1 and chapter 2, Naomi is angry, bitter. I got nothing. Lord is against me. She doesn't realize around the corner there is Boaz. She doesn't realize around the corner there is this meeting at the gate. So we think about our, pay, our, our joys, our, all the pains and joys, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Even the type of our background, type of parents that we had or we did not have, type of siblings that we have or we do not have. Some of you guys look back to your, your, your younger days and you realize not everything was so great. As adults, we realize, as kids, I think, oh, everything's great. No, as we, as we grow older, we're like, oh, that was really bad. And we think about our decisions our parents made, like, what were they thinking? You think back to like, things that they did, it was like, that's weird, right? And that was hurtful, that was painful. And we think, what was the point of all that? What's the point of my story? What's the point of all this things, all this junk that we have gone through? I mean, there are things personally for me, growing up as a pastor's kid, moving back to Korea, planting this church. There are some really dark things I've experienced myself. And I have a list of questions for Je maybe Peter, but maybe Jesus. I could sit down with Jesus and be like, Jesus, what were these things? Because as humans, we want to make sense of all the, all the things we experience. But I'm like, there's some things I literally cannot make sense of. Most things I can't. There are things I just cannot. Yet, a huge yet, just like what we see. Right? If we can zoom out, we can't, but if we could imagine zooming out, out you like that little hand thing? It took me a while to think through how, how to do that. As you zoom out of your life, think about, right now all we see is this relationship. 
this marriage, my spouse, I just hate that person. I can't live with that person. That's all we see because we argued about something, same thing over and over and over again. I don't think it's, I mean, okay, that stuff. And all you see is this argument. But if you zoom out, if you could think five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, and think about God being this, this, this storyteller that he connects what you have experienced as a young child to what, who you can help now. What you have experienced in your 20s to be able to help someone in your 40s. What you've experienced in the past, now you connect the dots and say, oh, wow, this is why it was like that. So friends, although you may feel lost and confused and frustrated, not only about your past, but maybe your present, let me remind you, God is not. Naomi was so bitter and angry, but God's like, I want to do my thing, Naomi. Don't worry, right? God is not impacted by Naomi's words. And God is not only in control, because that's one thing. He is kind. We see throughout this passage, we see God who is kind. We see God who continues to show his said faithfulness. That's the main idea of this book, right? Hesed, long-suffering faithfulness, loving kindness, unending covenantal commitment to you. And so as we talk about having grit in our faith or having gritty faith, I think one, one thing we need in order for, for us to be gritty in our faith is to be able to trust him, right? even when we don't know everything. To say, God, you know better than I. You really do know better than I. And that's really, I think, the story as we come to an end of Ruth. That's one thing that God wants us to remember. What you're going through, your emotions, your hurt, your frustration, they're real. I'm not saying they're not real not saying they're not important. At the same time, that's true, but also God in your life, God being in control, God being kind to you, kind to you, that's also true. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, what a story. Um, at the end, to find out this isn't simply about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and this unnamed man, but it's you as this amazing storyteller, you as someone who is involved in every way to be able to bring this redemption. Lord, we come to you this afternoon, um, and we have areas of our lives that need redeeming. Areas of our past, our experiences, um, our habits, our addictions. Places we turn for comfort and, and these things, Lord, we, we come because, Lord, we need a Redeemer. We come because, Lord, no matter how hard we want to be like Boaz, we, we cannot be like Boaz. No matter how much we want to be this righteous person, we realize 
That's not who we are. We are like Naomi. We are like Ruth sometimes. We are like this unnamed man. Um, so we continue, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you start opening up in the, opening up the areas in our lives where we're just holding tight and saying, we're going we're gonna to live this way. Lord, teach us that your math is different from ours. Teach us your ways are different from ours. Teach us that you see things zoomed out, 30x. We see things just today, just now. Yet, Lord, you are kind. You know how we feel. Would you not only heal us, but comfort us in this place? We thank you. We love you. Just say we pray. Amen.